The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Hi, I'm your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Well, as any parent with a teenager can tell you, their child's adolescent years can be intimidating, confusing, and anxiety-ridden, and I certainly can attest to that. I have three boys who have passed that period, but the behavioral changes that take place during that period strain even the strongest parent-child relationships, leaving both sides frustrated and begging a fundamental question, why do teens act this way? Uh, joining me today is renowned neuropsychiatrist and best-selling author Daniel J. Siegel, MD. He helps parents crack this code with his newest book, Brainstorm, The Power and Purpose of the Teenage Brain. Welcome to the show. It's nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Siegel. Thank you, Catherine. A pleasure to be here. All right. Well, this is a hot topic. It's always a hot I, With every generation, I think it's a hot topic. Yeah. Yeah. So now, okay, in Brainstorm, you provide parents with advice uh, on turning one's life's, and we call it life's most challenging periods, into one of its most rewarding. Yeah. So how do you do this? Well, you know, for me, uh, having also uh, two kids who's passed the teenage years, but now they're in their early 20s, which is still a part of adolescence, uh, I was really interested in seeing what did the science tell us about the adolescent period, and I was really surprised to find that the myths that are out there in our popular parenting culture are actually not keeping up with the science, and in fact, they're not only misleading, but they're actually harmful. And so I wrote the book for both an adolescent to read and an adult to read to help with this period and to help the communication across the generations, but also help deal with these important changes that are not due to what the myths tell us, raging hormones or to the the adolescent just being immature, but rather it's an adaptive period where the remodeling of the brain that we now understand is actually influencing how an adolescent feels, how he or she thinks, and how they behave in fundamental ways that we can now understand because of our understanding of the brain. Right, so so Dr. To... Siegel, what you're saying is, first of all, the book is for parents and for the teenager, which I think is a good thing, so they yes. both can be reading it, maybe not even individually, but together at the same time, so that's good. And, but, and, you, you, take, and you just mentioned a couple of the myths that really, that we still, I think that many of us, of course, until we read your book, still kind of go by when you talk about teenagers, so can we be like specific in terms of the myths? I mean, take them, you, t- you talk about raging hormones, and you know, I mean, I, as I said, I had three teenage boys, they're in their early 30s now, but, uh, you know, and that was one of the, you know, they were, they were the test- I used to say, well, you know, the testosterone is raging, of course, those are the raging hormones, and this yeah. is why they act the way they do, but let's, you know debunk that myth, or will you, yeah. can you debunk that myth for us, that one specifically? 
Absolutely. Well, you know, when puberty hits, which is roughly the beginning of adolescence, and, and that's an interesting thing by itself, is that it's happening earlier and earlier for reasons we don't understand. But when puberty hits, there's no question hormones rise. So for boys, it's testosterone. For girls, it's progesterone and estrogen. Um, but there are also androgens as girl, in girls as well. Um, and these hormones do rise. But when we look at the changes in how you feel or how you think or how you behave, it's not correlated with raging hormones. Hormones influence behavior, of course. But it's actually correlated with structural changes in the brain that we had no understanding of in earlier years, but now we understand as a period of remodeling. So the first myth, raging hormones make adolescents act out of control, is not accurate. Uh, And in fact, if you believe that, then you feel like there's nothing you can do. But when you understand that it's a remodeling brain, when we go into the specifics of that, then you get insights into what's actually going on, even in ways that you can change the way the brain is functioning. That's the amazing thing, that understanding allows you to use your mind to actually strengthen your brain during the adolescent period and beyond. Well, so how does that exactly work? Okay, you're right. If you talk about raging hormones, we as parents will say, well, you know what, there is nothing I can do. I'm sort of a victim to those hormones, and so are, in my case, so are the boys. But, okay, so you're saying, no, you can actually, the brain is remodeling, and so you have control over it because the structure of the brain is changing. Can you put that into layman's terms? What does that do for us as a parent? Okay, we know now that it's not the hormones, it's the brain, we can remodel it, but... Give us an example. Like, yeah. yeah. Certainly. I'm, I'm happy to. So, um, so when we move from the myth of the raging hormones, we come to the second myth, which is you know, something a lot of us uh, used to believe, and maybe most people still believe, that adolescence is a period of immaturity. So to, to build on this idea of remodeling, uh, what does immaturity mean? Immaturity means something isn't uh, you know, where it should be. It's going to develop and hopefully get over this period of immaturity and get mature. Well, instead, it's better to think about the adolescent period as a time of remodeling. Now, what does that mean? In, in, in literal terms, that means that the brain is going to do two things. It's going to be pruning some of its circuits away. That's to cut, carving them away when it's, they're not needed. And the other thing is going to be creating connections among the existing neurons, and that's called myelination. Myelin is a, a sheath that makes the way the basic cell of the brain, the neuron, Uh, how it communicates with another neuron is made more coordinated and efficient with myelin. So overall, this is a process called remodeling that makes the brain more integrated. And over the period, let's say, of 12 to 24, there's going to be a lot of pruning and myelinating going on. Now, it turns out you can alter the pruning process and the myelination process by what you do with your mind. That we now know definitively And so, for example, if we can keep certain activities going, for example, if you want to learn to balance your emotions in a better way, you can do that by training your mind with things I teach in the book. In Brainstorm, I teach about mindsight skills. And so we know now from research that how you focus your attention in specific ways can allow you to balance your emotions better. So that's something you can do because the brain is remodeling, and you can shape that remodeling uh, to certain degrees. The other thing All right, is that, I'm going to stop you there. Okay, yeah. mind, sight, skills. Yeah. What are they? How do you do that? Put okay. it in the context 
you know, and I think it's always best to, it makes it easier for listeners to understand if we put it in the context. Give us an example of a teenager who may be what we, I'm using the word acting out, which is kind of a social work term, but, sure. um, and, and blaming it on, on hormones and blaming it on, um, you know, outgrowing adolescence and you're, that's not the case. So give us an example. Okay. Mindside so, skills. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a couple of examples, uh, many examples of individuals since I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist you know, I work with or, you know, people I know personally in my life in the book. So there are many, many examples. One example would be um, a a young woman who um, was going through some ups and downs in her emotions and didn't know, you know, exactly whether this was developing into a psychiatric disorder or whether this was just about her temperament or just stress at school or what was going on. And so the mindset skill that I taught her was to focus her attention on her breath, her breathing. And once she learned to do that, when her mind got distracted, she developed the skill of returning her attention to the breath, in breath, out breath, in breath, out breath. Then she would get distracted like everyone does, but she would learn to return to the breath. Now, that sounds really simple, but what it did was it strengthened her ability to sense the internal world and to sense when she was distracted. The next thing that she learned was something I call the wheel of awareness practice, which people can do from my website and try it out themselves, your listeners, at drdansiegel.com. You can just go to resources and do these skills, these mindset skills. And in that skill, the wheel of awareness, she learned to basically develop what's called the hub of this wheel, this internal spaciousness. And around the rim was anything she could be aware of. So now not just the breath, but also her thoughts, her feelings. So in this case, when a feeling would arise, before she learned this skill, the feeling would take her over. She'd be lost like on the surface of the ocean, bouncing around the waves like a cork bobbing up and down in the turbulence. But now she was developing it as if she were beneath the surface of the water where it was calm and clear. And as she said, you know, her whole life changed when she developed this ability to be in the hub of her mind. We're even teaching this wheel of awareness to kids as young as kindergarten. So this isn't just for adolescents, but when they develop the wheel of awareness practice, this is the basic mindset skill you can learn, everything changes in terms of your emotional life. And so someone who before was just being thrown around by whatever emotions arose, she could be aware of a feeling that came and then went. And if you just give a feeling space, within 90 seconds, you'll come back to equilibrium. But if you try to get rid of a feeling or grasp onto a feeling, it will intensify. And so learning this mindset skill, mindset is basically seeing the mind. By developing this skill, her emotional equilibrium was established and her life became less stressful. Her interactions with her parents were improved. Her interaction with her peers were improved. Her relationship with herself was filled with more kindness and compassion. So this was an example, one example of the many examples I talk about in the book of when you learn mindset skills, you actually integrate your brain, you make it more resilient, and you allow yourself a trajectory, a pathway into your later years that's very different than if you didn't learn these skills. But does this involve, and I'm going to kind of label it, I guess, like sophisticated kind of parenting. I mean, can can parents actually apply this to their as you say, not just teenage kids, but you start when they're in kindergarten. You can start when they're in elementary school. I mean, how do you do this? How do you teach individual parents or families, or is this done in the schools? I mean, yeah. 
Well, you know, the, the, the really exciting thing for me as a person who's both trained in science and also a clinician and now an educator is we can teach this in school. So a book I wrote, um, The Whole Brain Child with Tina Bryson, we teach this to parents on how to teach it in schools. In Brainstorm, what I do is I take these mindset skills and I, I really wanted to write a book for teenagers themselves and for older adolescents. So anyone from 12 to 24 can read this book and it isn't about the parents teaching it. The book will teach these skills to them. And if they take it on themselves, and I basically you have the book like a, a relationship, a conversation where I say, look, this is up to you. You know, your parent can't tell you what to do. But let me show you the reasons why this is good for you to choose to do this. So, so you don't need sophisticated parenting techniques to do this. This is now available uh, for the first time, really, for a teenager to have a, a manual, if you will, to understanding their own mind, to understand the adolescent period. And if the adult reads it too, you know, they can do these t- practices also. And what would be really exciting to see, and you're doing this through media, you know, and it's a beautiful thing, Catherine, that to really be able to see, can we invite the larger culture to develop these mindset abilities? Because when we do that, we're actually going to create more compassion toward the self, more compassion and kindness toward others, and more integration. This, this, this source of health is something we now know from research. You can actually create that in your life. You don't have to say, I'm passive and it's raging hormones or I'm immature. You can actually say, I'm in a process of developing more integration, and if I do these mindset practices, I can actually make my brain more integrated and my life fuller and more resilient. And I think the other thing you're doing is helping to create kind of a healthy independence. I mean, as you say, a teenager can do this on his or her own. They don't need the help or the of a parent. So uh, that pull to be independence, which is a healthy thing, I think that does evolve over, you know, as you, I say, break away from your parents emotionally. But so you've created this very independent way of of controlling your emotions, taking control, and. You can do it for yourself as a teenager. Absolutely. And, you know, I think we need to really encourage adolescents to realize um, that they're not just at the whim of raging hormones. That's wrong. They're not immature. That's wrong. In fact, it's a time of incredible courage and creativity, and they can do this on their own. It is empowering. And I'm, I'm really, really excited to see if we can support adolescents in empowering themselves with these skills that will allow them to actually balance their emotions, clarify their thinking, strengthen their relationships, and maintain really a kind of open communication with their parents. And I think it's very exciting to see how this can evolve. Some of the yeah. problems in adolescence, one, of course, and it seems to be on the rise, I'm not sure what the statistics are, but alcohol, it, mm-hmm. alcoholism, alcohol use, drug use, in middle years even, uh, you know, middle school kids getting involved in sexual activities, all of those kinds of things. So how does this kind of play out in terms of those kinds of behaviors? Well, absolutely. Well, first, just to support exactly what you're saying, Catherine, the, the, um, the studies basically show that the adolescent body is actually stronger and more resilient than any other time of life. And at the same time, the adolescent chance of being injured by some preventable accident or even killed is actually three times higher. Now, that's a shocking comparison. A healthy, strong body, but yet the risk of, of injury or death 
is three times higher. And then we have the, the, the next layer that's amazing is if you're going to develop an addiction, it's most likely to happen during the adolescent period if you're going to develop a psychiatric disorder. The major disorders like schizophrenia or depression or you know, manic depressive illness or certain anxiety disorders most likely to have its onset during adolescence. Now, why is that the case? There's a couple things that are now being considered from a scientific point of view, but the major process uh, is uh, pruning, where you're cutting away certain existing neurons and revealing underlying either genetically vulnerable or even experientially caused vulnerabilities that then allow the brain not to function as well. That's one thing. But the second thing is there's a change in this uh, substance called dopamine. And dopamine is a substance of chemical that's involved in the reward circuits of the brain. And every addiction uh, is involving dopamine. So when you are driven to do something, usually it's novelty, and, and we think the reason the brain is having lower baseline dopamine and higher release levels of dopamine is that nature has created a brain that basically says, I need to get you, individual, out of the home where you're comfortable, you're familiar, you're safe. I need you to be able to take risks. So if I change your dopamine balance, it'll drive you toward the main thing that releases dopamine is novelty. Now, these days, what, what can drive dopamine are drugs of addiction or gambling or, you know, sometimes video games. And sometimes, you know, people can get into excessive sexual stimulation. That can become addictive in some people. So, so what we have here then is nature's way of getting the child ready to leave home, which is positive. But the downside of that same dopamine change is exactly what you're saying. So I think what we need to do is name it for what it is, a, a change in dopamine, and then harness the drive of an adolescent to try new things in a positive direction, including empowering the adolescent to know that this is a vulnerability they have uh, and to identify things like drug use, alcohol use, gambling, game playing as potentially addictive, uh, and then work with adolescents to support them in literally developing an internal compass where they themselves can say, you know, I don't really want to become a slave to my dopamine system making me use this drug. Um, I'm going to decide myself. Not that a parent is telling me not to do it, but if we can teach an adolescent from the inside out to have this inner compass, that's our best shot at really helping them uh, reduce the chance of getting addicted or getting involved in other activities that are destructive for them. So if we're saying that this dopamine is a vehicle for change, which is necessary and a positive yeah. thing from an evolutionary process, but yeah. we don't want it to be a vehicle for change in the sense of drugs, alcohol, sex, etc., et then you give them another vehicle to, to sort of um, focus the dopamine or the, or the change. Like you talk about the golden age, adolescence is the golden age of innovation and creativity. So yes. you would take that, be aware that you have this change in dopamine, and then you can use that to be more creative, to be more innovative, and obviously you have to have the resources to do that, both within the family and school and this society at large, right? Right. Well, and when we think about it, you know, I, I try to summarize this in the Brainstorm book with the word essence. You know, there are four fundamental changes that spell the word essence. There's an emotional spark. So there's a passion in adolescence that is really wonderful. It's also potentially full of, you know, uh, challenging emotional states, but it's also 
full of vitality. So emotional spark, the SE, is social engagement. Adolescents push to be with their peers, not their parents, and that's healthy and normal, and there's safety in numbers, and as they get ready to leave the nest, that's a natural thing. It isn't just a rejection of parents like parents say. It's actually a positive way of getting ready to be out in the world. That's social engagement. The N is novelty. You know, the dopamine change does drive an adolescent to try new things, um, and that can be positive, but as we've pointed out, it also has risks associated with it. And the CE, as you're indicating, you know, is creative explorations. The mind of the adolescent is the source of the major innovation in science, technology, art, and music. Now, what happens, I believe, in our society is we're now at a time when the world is really in a huge period of uncertainty. We're exposed to information that lets us know about that uncertainty and that danger. And adolescents are facing a world with lots of serious, some people say, unrepairable problems. The way the climate is changing, violence, uh, unhealthy food availability and air and water. I mean, we're in a very serious time on our planet. And adolescents, as they go through this natural uh, period of, of remodeling, are facing a world that's very different from what you and I face, Catherine. And here's, here's what I think we need to do. We as a culture, we as parents, need to identify the essence of adolescence and help adolescents really build on their passions. So not just shove them into schools where we say it's the same old, same old, you're just a child now who's a little older and your workload is going to be higher. No, we have to really find a way to capitalize on the passion, and that's how you can get the dopamine circuit more involved in an individualized way where you identify what is a creative outlet for this adolescent social well, engagement. Well, let me stop. I want to ask yeah. you, Dr. Siegel, because yes. you, obviously you're also a professor of psychiatry, uh, a, a professor at UCL, UCLA School of Medicine, uh, besides being a neurobiologist, but a neuropsychiatrist. But aren't we doing just the opposite? You know, we, you know, with our our debt and our spending cuts, we do we're doing in our school systems, for instance, just the opposite of what the adolescent needs. When we have to cut programs, we cut all of these creative, exploratory kinds of opportunities for the kids, theater, music, art, even sports. I know, So we end up with same old, same old, and we're doing exactly the opposite of what we need to do, um, as you're describing it, for the teenage brain. I totally agree, and this is why I think things, as you're very accurately pointing out, feel like they're getting worse because, in fact, they, they are. And here's, here's the sad thing about it is that we can actually do something about it, but we're generally not. And part of what I hope the brainstorm thing can do is do just what you're saying. Can we say, okay, um, all of the forces at work are actually exactly the opposite of what we need to do to support adolescents? And let's keep in mind that the adolescents are the next adult generation. And so if we don't take action to support this age group, we're actually going to have a pretty stressed out young adult group entering their 30s um, when it doesn't have to be that way. So I've been speaking to a lot of people in the school systems, principals of schools, superintendents, ministers of education um, in different countries, including the United States, to say, let's, let's really look at what the science of adolescence is all about. Let's really consider how is it going? Well, adolescents are stressed Beyond any other period, they are so, when you look at statistically, what the research shows, they are more miserable than any other generation has been. They're so stressed. Now, 
I think it's because of what the world is throwing them and because the pressures on them are so great. So across all cultures, can we actually support this adolescent period to really feel their essence, to, to tap into this emotional spark, to instead of making them competitive with each other, why not have them collaborate with each other and compete against world problems? You can redesign an education, which is what I'm trying to consult with these educational systems to do, where you actually say, okay, let's use the competitive drive to fight against world hunger so that you collaborate with your peers to beat the enemy when everyone will win when the enemy is defeated, when the enemy is a world problem. Now it's who's going to get the best grades and best SAT scores so you can get to the best college, so what? So you get into the best graveyard? I mean, this is kind of where it all it pushes everybody towards. It's unbelievable stress. Now we can understand it because the world is full of uncertainty, but it's only deteriorating the essence of adolescence. This is the, this is the big problem. And I think we can really do something about it. I really, really do. I think that's such a great idea, and I, and I guess truly innovative. I mean, I, you know, until obviously reading your book and hearing you speak, I had never heard of, like, competing against the world problems, collaborating as teenagers to compete mm-hmm. against the world problems instead of competing against one another to get in. And, and it's just what you say. I mean, you talk about the Ivy League schools or even just getting into college. It's a worldwide competition against each other. And, uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, boy, if you can implement that, I think that's a, that's a fantastic idea. I want well, to ask you, you this, but yeah. how do we, well, maybe I shouldn't ask you this question because this kind of has to do with competition, but where does the United, you know, you lecture worldwide and a lot of your research has been done, uh, you know, worldwide. So how does the United States fit into this in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the, the competition, how we see it, collaboration? Are we... In the ballpark or are other... No, I think, I think we could do a lot better. I mean, if you look at Finland, for example, and I do uh, different things with Finland, you know, they have one of the most collaborative kinds of experiences for their students. Their students are collaborating with each other and are actually achieving some of the highest scores without the pressure to achieve that the U.S. students who are getting worse scores are having. And there's a, there's a lot of people interested in how this Finnish approach to education is working uh, and to try to emulate it. I, the, the essence of it is basically hold on to the love of learning. Support collaboration. Realize that the world is so full of issues. This is my own way. I think we could translate this in the United States. The world is so full of issues. We're a competitive people here in the U.S. That's fine. Let's compete with world hunger. Let's compete with world violence. Let's compete with the climate change things that we're facing now. So if we actually turn it around, say, okay, yes, we're competitive, but we're also just as much, if not more, collaborative, we have this opportunity to take the essence of adolescence and really empower adolescents, but also empower adults, because I think adults are also feeling stresses as well. And there's a lot of things we can do together. And I, I point these all out in the Brainstorm book. And my hope, because it's just out, is that, you know, when people take it on themselves, if they find it matches with their experience and they build these mindset skills, we can start working on this together and make a different approach to education, different way of really supporting parents, supporting adolescents. And the conversation in our culture can really be different about how to bring more health into the world. Well, Dr. Daniel Siegel 
uh, author of Brainstorm, The Power and Purpose of the Teenage Brain. I mean, it really has been a pleasure to talk to you today. And I, I mentioned, obviously, I mentioned the book again, but what about a website? Because we have to uh, take a break now. Absolutely. Uh, the yes. website you can uh, get the book through or just find out other relevant things is drdansiegel.com, which is D-R-D-A-N-S-I-E-G-E-L.com. And there you'll find a number of things, including the book, that may be of interest to you. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It was a real a, pleasure. A pleasure, Catherine. Thank you. We're going to take a short break right now, uh, but coming back will be Pamela Slim. She's our next guest. She's a seasoned coach and writer who helps frustrated employees in corporate jobs break out and start their own businesses. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're a part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me next is Pamela Slim. She's the acclaimed author of Escape from Cubicle Nation. She's a seasoned coach and writer who helps frustrated employees in corporate jobs 
break out and start their own businesses. Her blog, Escape from Cubicle Nation, is one of the top career and marketing sites on the web, but her new book is Body of Work, which is what we're going to be talking about today, Body of Work, Finding the Thread that Ties Your Story Together. Welcome to the show, Pamela. Nice to have you on today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, according to you, the traditional resume worked well or was fine back when most of us had traditional kinds of careers, which that would include myself. But now that the job market is, and I think most of us would agree, is inherently unstable, most people have a patchwork of experience, including big company jobs, startup gigs, freelance work, and volunteer side projects. So given all that, in body of work, as I understand it, you're telling us how to find connections among all these diverse accomplishments, sell our story, and continually reinvent and relaunch our brands. Is that what we have? So my question is, why in this culture today now, considering unemployment, employment, the whole work situation, why do we need to do this? And specifically, how do we do this? Yes. Well, uh, I have been a career coach for a long time, a couple decades, and it's been really interesting because I've worked in just about every work mode you can imagine. My roots are actually more in the social work arena and international development in Latin America. So I worked in nonprofits, I worked in, in corporate, and then the last eight years I've worked in startups and helping people to start a business. And one of the things that I've noticed in, in recent years is that, and especially after the economic crash in, in 2008 and 2009, is is that uh, so many people were feeling the instability, they're, they're feeling fear. Uh, most of what it is that we're reporting in the news is how things really aren't the way they used to be, which is definitely an obvious, <laughs> an obvious statement, right, that you know, our economy is not the same as it used to be and job opportunities. Uh, I notice, for example, in May and June of every year, uh, there's always stories coming out saying it's the worst possible time to graduate from college, and they do stories of you know, folks living on their parents' couch. Uh, and, you know, to me what was puzzling is, yes, I see that absolutely that things are less stable than they used to be, but we're also in a new world of work where there are a lot of interesting new creative ways in which people are working. And so what I wanted to do with this book is to provide a framework and a way of thinking that could allow us to both look back at our work history and make sense of it, which is really important as we're looking forward to new opportunities, but also to use it as a way to really think about what is that kind of work that we want to do. And that could be for somebody who is a recent college graduate and in the first job out of school uh, or people who were in midlife or even nearing retirement who aren't ready to really stop working. All right, so we, we agree with the premise. I think things are not the way they used to be. So what you do in the book is take us very specifically. They're not the way they used to be. Uh, the job situation has changed. How we get a job has changed. All of those kinds of things. So you are very specific about how we make those changes so that we can get a job and we can be satisfied and we're passionate <clears throat> about what we do. So, okay, let's now take it to that level. What do we do? How do we do it? And you're talking about, let's take the, start with the college grad who gets out of work, yeah. as you say, and, and, you know, all the news, yeah, you read this, they can't get a job, they can't find a job, what, you know, you major in English, you major in political science or philosophy, and say you don't want to get a master's degree or a PhD right away, so what do you do besides sitting on your parents' couch? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, the, the premise is, is the purpose of our life is really to create a body of work that we're very proud of. So throughout the course of our life, be involved in interesting, meaningful projects, 
be working with organizations that we care about, um, and doing work that is really meaningful to us that also provides uh, a good living according to whatever kinds of standards that we have for our own success. And that's going to be really different depending upon different people. Um, some people want to start a huge movement and organization, and other people are going to be really happy to have a job that really supports having an active social life and family life. So the, the places to start are really looking at what, uh, I call them your roots. What actually are things that are very deeply important to you? What are things that you care about? Uh, what are your values? What are your beliefs? And, and you can notice that something is a really deep root for you when it evokes a really strong emotional reaction. So it can be things that make you angry when you see injustice in the world. It can be things that make you excited, where as soon as you think about a certain topic, you naturally get excited about it. And when you begin to, to identify these roots, and, and sometimes what I find is a little confusing in career work is when people are driving us to define a singular life purpose. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I've never really been able to zero in on one thing, one reason why I'm here on earth. I often find many different reasons at different points in my career. So you begin to identify things that are really interesting to you, problems that you want to solve. And then the next step, really, even starting when you're young, if you're right out of college, is to identify your ingredients, all of your specific skills, your competencies, your experiences, even your scars, even some of the difficult parts of your life uh, where there has been hardship, because I think most people have found that you know life can be challenging. And you really want to take an assessment and say, of all the, these different ingredients that I have, all these different potential ways that I can add value, which do I really want to use for this next um, next engagement. And the way that I see the new world of work moving is um, it's less having a singular career path where you might work within one organization for a long time, and it's more a series of projects. So some could last for three to five years. You know, a project could be working with an organization where you say, okay, I'm out of school. I've really taken an assessment. These are the areas I'm excited about moving forward with. So let me really choose what is the best work mode in which I can do this work. Do I, I, I've seen kids now these days uh, starting a Kickstarter project right out of school. Right? They're, they're skipping the career ladder altogether. They're skipping going into organizations, and they say, I have an idea, and I want to fund a social project, maybe have a social enterprise or a social business, and so I'm going to get it kickstarted and get it moving. So the first thing you want to do is decide what is that kind of work mode that's going to support me in creating this next piece of my body of work, and that—that's where you really set that um, set that target for specifically what it is that you're working on. All right, so you're talking about a lot of things here. First of all, you have to, as you say, identify your roots. But then once you identify your roots, then you have to figure out a way to put it into motion. A Kickstarter is, is a great way to do it. I mean, and there are those opportunities. I think more and more uh, on the on the internet. So it, you know, that opens up a whole new. It's challenging, but there's a lot more opportunities. I think you know, taking going that route, for instance. But what can you do? And I even want to backtrack a little bit, like when you're in college to prepare for all this. Mm-hmm. I mean, the millennials apparently don't stay at a job for more than two or two and a half years. Hmm. Uh, yeah. as, as I understand, at least some of the research says. So nobody's out there looking for the gold watch anymore, I don't think. I mean, at least in my experience. Um, so would you do things like, say, in, you're talking about identifying your roots. What makes you angry? What makes you passionate? If you're in college, you can have opportunities for internships or you may have opportunities to be mentored by certain people or belong, make certain connections, belong to certain clubs, all of those kinds of things so that you have the, the vehicle once you've identified your roots to be able to, and you have the experience also, you've done some different kinds of things that you can put into practice once you graduate. 
That's exactly right. And so it's doing all of those things, which have been good practices, you know, even since I was in college. I think the difference now is you want to also be showcasing your work. So you actually want to showcase the kind of projects that you have. And I think for a lot of the millennials now, they're, they're really used to having a web presence, having a place that might be a site. Uh, now it's, it's funny, one of the things people say as soon as you're, uh, people are getting pregnant these days is make sure you reserve the domain name for your kid, right? Everybody needs to own their own <laughs> domain name. It's such, a, it's such a funny new world, isn't it? But yeah, a, lot of, a, a lot of college students are really uh, taking that path where they are demonstrating their work. They're showcasing their work. So first of all, when people Google them, if, if they're interested even in doing an internship or being mentored, a lot, of, a lot of folks are going directly to Google to say, who is this person and what have they done? This, I think, is a key difference uh, from the past is that we really want to understand uh, people by what they have actually created. Uh, and I had, it's interesting, my best friend's daughter just graduated uh, in May. And she is one of these kids who was so proactive all throughout her college career where she reached out, she looked for opportunities for mentoring, she did internships, and uh, it was back in, I think, October of last year, <clears throat> she knew she was graduating, and so she... She was sending me messages like, you know, help me. I'm researching the top PR firms where I, I want to be working uh, when I graduate and was very proactive at reaching out, making connections, and showcasing her work. She had a, a blog that she was working on. She's in, in uh, public relations as her major. And so she was really showcasing her work. And by the time she graduated, she had three very strong opportunities. The one she took was with the number one PR firm in the United States, White and Kennedy. Uh, and, you know, it was amazing to me to watch. And that's why sometimes when I hear these stories about, you know, kids graduating, it's a horrible market. It is if you're not doing the things that are now required in order to get hired. She was so proactive, but a lot of the work she had created and done was actually referenced, like in Wyden Kennedy's case, some of the hiring managers who interviewed her were familiar with her work. They had heard about her. And this is just a different thing. We're talking about college graduates, but this really is something that is for all of us. And, and, and now we really do need to be demonstrating what kind of work have we done? What is our body of work? How are we known? What do we believe? And what value do we add to the world? What happens to the person who's 40 years old who gets canned from a job? Let's you know, kind of take it in the middle there. Uh, and then who's, say, worked, has worked at a job, you know, maybe kind of not the Generation X or maybe even a baby boomer, who at age 40 uh, gets, uh, you know, they downsize wherever this person is working mm-hmm. uh, and they have to find a new job or a new position, but they haven't been used to you know, all of the different outlets that you've described, like your friend's daughter. Mm-hmm. But so, what do they do? How do they suddenly become you know a viable candidate for a, another job? Yeah, or you profession. Know, I- Definitely. It, it's never too late to start. And it's one of those things where one of actually the big missions behind the book is to begin to introduce these ideas now so that if somebody is really happily employed in, 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 a, in their organization and things are moving along, that they don't get complacent thinking that job is always going to be there. I, I don't want everybody feeling anxiety. Don't get me wrong. No. Well, but you need plan <laughs> but, B. But, but you need plan B. And, and one of the things that I've worked a lot with in Escape from Cubicle Nation is what I affect called a side hustle. So many people, when they're fully employed, have a small side business as a way to test different ideas, 
see what it would be like to work for themselves. For those that are serious about it, it's a really great way in order to begin to build a business on the side. And it can be everything from uh, an Etsy craft business to, you know, doing organizing to doing consulting, whatever is the kind of skill that you have, one of your ingredients that you could use in order to generate revenue. So it's also really an insurance policy where if it happens that you are, you've just been solely focused in your job, you don't have a strong network outside of your organization, you haven't been doing things to demonstrate your work, you know, maybe you haven't had a blog or you haven't actively been updating, you know, your profile on LinkedIn and building new connections, um, then then that's it, it's just never too late to start, right? That's exactly, you can still go through the steps in, in the assessment to figure out what really is the right next step for you. And it is so painful and difficult when you're unexpectedly laid off. I've seen it so many times. I've, I've worked with so many clients that way. And when I was a consultant to corporations, I saw it from the inside, you know, what would happen when people let folks go. Um, it, it, it can be so difficult, but it is not an insurmountable thing. And there are so many stories of people that I hear in my work who were devastated initially, but then when they took the time um, after being laid off to really stop and assess and say, am I doing work that's meaningful to me? Am I really utilizing my strengths and my skills? Do I want to continue in this particular work mode that it's a chance to really make a pivot? And what I mean it's never too late is you can, if you haven't really taken the time to fill out a really great LinkedIn profile, if you've never created a website where you can you know, share your ideas and showcase the work that you've done, that's a really strong thing that you can do right away as you're going through the interview process. And, I think that's uh, a great yeah. idea. You know, be prepared. It uh, keeps going through my mind. Just be yeah. prepared. Kind of be, expect to perhaps lose your job, you know, no, through no fault of your own, obviously, given the economy. So you need to go in. You have to always be prepared. And I think you, what you're saying is you can be prepared in different ways. Yeah, maybe you're 40 years old and you haven't been on the net and doing all those kinds of things you described, but have those. It doesn't even have to be two or a small business on the side, does it? A small activity, something that no. you are using different skills. You can also take the skills that you've used in the job that you're getting fired from and put them into a different a different venue, but using the same skill set. Isn't that... It's exactly true. And, you know, even, even uh, it can also be in a situation where you're just very proactive within your professional community because I found in my own experience that so much work and so many jobs happen by personal referrals. So if you're a social worker or if you're a marketing professional or if you're a journalist or whatever your profession is, Connect and belong to professional associations. You know, contribute to your field. Get to know people who are interesting to you. And one of my favorite things to do, I used to do a lot more in San Francisco. Now I live in Mesa, Arizona in the suburbs and, you know, have little kids at home, so I do less, uh, I go out less. But when I was in San Francisco, I would often proactively reach out to somebody interesting in the city and, and invite them out for coffee. And, you know, with no agenda, I wasn't looking for a job. I was just looking to learn something interesting from people. And those are the kind of things that we, I really feel we need to be doing. It, it makes me anxious if I see anybody, including a business owner, you know, who's sitting in a great niche market. Uh, if one thing I saw in the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in the crash of 2008 is that any kind of business can be uh, unstable. So you can't really, you want to always be able to answer the question, you know, what happens if things change radically tomorrow? What are my alternatives? And what I hope it does once you get those plans in place is then it just allows you to feel more peaceful, you know, in your current role and you can focus on doing a great job. 
Yeah, Pamela, it's like diversification, diversification. When they talk about making investments, I mean, you don't invest in just one company, hopefully, or in one stock. You want to diversify. Well, kind of this is sort of the same thing, isn't it? You're diversifying. Exactly. You're diversifying your opportunities. So, you know, some people are going to want to do many different kinds of jobs throughout the course of their life. Other people want to have a certain craft or a profession, but that they can use in different ways. Or maybe they can, you know, work in a number of different organizations or different ways. So that's the part that only each individual has to identify for him or herself. It's it's really important. Are we talking about... Just professional jobs or, let's say, corporate jobs or people who are entrepreneurs? Or how does that fit into, and I think you kind of alluded to it in the beginning of, of our uh, conversation, but what about people who, just, who graduate from high school, who uh, work in a factory, for instance? Look what happened to the auto industry. How can they prepare in the same way? I mean, you have somebody who has a 9-to-5 job. Uh, it's grueling, not only you know physically grueling. Um, can they do the same thing um, that... You know, you're kind of describing some of these examples have been on entrepreneurs or professionals or people who are in the corporate sector. Right. I, I see it very much. My husband has a high school diploma. He never went to college. Uh, he's Navajo and uh, here in, in full-blooded Navajo here in Arizona, Native American. And he exhibits every single one of the, you know, of the characteristics of, of developing a body of work. And he is uh, very proactive in how he really um, builds his community. He has worked for others. He's had his own company. As a, he has a construction, had a construction business here when we had the economic crash. I mean, that was really, really difficult. But he is able to pivot within his core area of expertise, which is in, you know, grading and, and building huge, you know, huge projects. Projects, um, and he's constantly shifting. He has taught me so much. So I do see it as something that is really more an approach and a philosophy that you have. And in some ways, it's it's not just uh, in the new world of work that has to do with the internet and social media. It really is looking backwards, a way that many more people used to work. Right? You know, before industrialization, before factories, where we just focused yep. on everybody having individual jobs, often people were craftspeople and then they had a, you know, a side project. And, and so I really do see the core components of it are really about identifying for you and what's important to you. How can you do meaningful work in whatever kind of situation that is? Yeah. Well, you two cover the gamut. You, <laughs> you really practice what you preach. Um, in terms of the jobs that you do and the diversity and and uh, which is fantastic. Um, yeah, it's it's a very interesting combination. And he was traditionally raised, so he was raised by you know medicine people, his father and his grandfather. So we tease each other. He calls me a medicine woman, and I call him a life coach. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the philosophies are very similar. You <laughs> know, uh, that's a great combination. All right, now have we covered like you know we talked about the college students and the 40 year old who perhaps you know has been in a job for 10 or 15 years and, and then gets fired uh what else give us some other examples of very specific kinds of situations that people in the workforce will find themselves in so and you know how to prepare for just what we've been talking about yeah, I, my dad is actually a central figure in the book, and he's been a huge influence for me. He's a photographer and uh, a journalist, and he is somebody who has, he's 79 years old today, and he still is a 
freelancing. So he's just the most uh, active person <laughs> that I know. He's an, he's an example of somebody who always really enjoyed his career, but he also had a huge passion and commitment for volunteer projects. So, for example, in his small town of 200 people in uh, Port Costa, California, for 13 years, he and other volunteers recycled the entire town. There was no pickup recycling service, so every two mm-hmm. weeks they'd pick up everybody's recycling and they'd, you know, they'd turn it in. After that, they purchased an old 100-year-old school in town, and for 25 years they've been restoring it carefully back to its original state to make it a community center. And I think this is something that can be relevant for people who might actually be quite happy within their work situation, but they also really want to be clear about how they can really be making a meaningful contribution to the world in general. And to me, it really spoke as the core metaphor I use in the first chapter about what is a body of work, of something that I've really learned from my dad about building a cohesive, really meaningful um, life where uh, before I used to look at it a little bit uh, fragmented, right, where he had his corporate job, which he loved being a photographer for a, it was a, a Pacific Gas and Electric, a public utility. Um, But then he was also a very active volunteer person. And what I began to see is he always was using all his ingredients, all of his, you know, strengths and skills, and tying the threads between all of the different activities that he did. And uh, even though, uh, you know, he's not very well-known on the Internet or, you know, he he doesn't, not on Facebook or LinkedIn... In his own 200-person community, he has made a huge impact, along with my bonus mom, my stepmom, you know, where they've been doing that work over the years. So I think that's another interesting thing to look at, is it's not just in cases where you might be wanting to do, you know, job searching that later in your life, if, uh, you know, you, you retire or sometimes you lose a spouse and you're really looking for meaningful work to do, I think that's another way that you can begin to, to look at it. And, and one of the things my, my mom and dad have both taught me is that there's just never, it's never too late to make a contribution and you can be really contributing amazing things all throughout the course of your life. It's very inspiring and it makes me feel just downright young at 47. <laughs> When yeah. I look at what they're doing in their their late seventies, yeah, that's a perfect example. Because yeah, you're taking us into people who do retire, you know, and, pe- and people seem to not want to retire in the old traditional way, as you're describing your father. Um, that's a perfect example of of being able. You just keep you keep doing what you do and passionate about what you do up until the end, whenever that yeah. happens to be. Exactly. Uh, and also, I think some of the baby boomers, the older baby boomers. Um, also get in situations perhaps where they're not as well or they get sick, but they are still viable. They can still do something. So, you know, they want to take their skills and maybe do something different than what they did when they were healthy. So there are a lot of reasons for doing, you know, just as your father, um, he sounds like an amazing man, 79, he's almost 80 years old. Yeah. And yeah. It's amazing. And one of the stories I have in the book is a friend of mine, uh, Rafe Eric Biggs, who was a leadership consultant and, you know, super athletic and active, really handsome guy and, and really wonderful, has a PhD in leadership. He went on a trip to India and ended up falling off a roof and he now is paraplegic. And uh, his story is amazing of like having a completely unexpected 
thing happen that was really terrifying and terrible, but he has also chosen to take that situation and, you know, learn from it, continue to do work. One of the things that he found once he was disabled is there was no real information in the world about sexuality as it relates to folks who have disabilities, that it wasn't even discussed. It was as if, you know, people didn't have any of those feelings whatsoever. And so that's been a whole kind of journey that he's been developing with his body of work now. As he says, it was, you know, he was looking, he went to India looking for a spiritual epiphany. He didn't realize what form it was going to take. And it's amazing to see through that kind of adversity what it is that he has chosen to keep creating. Another friend of mine has uh, cerebral palsy. She's from Canada. Her name is Glenda Watson Hyatt. And she can only write with her left thumb. She's, we were writing our first books at the same time. Mm-hmm. She's a motivational speaker. She's rigged technology so that she can be typing with her left thumb in front of a group and using voice technology, communicate and do a motivational speech. I mean, yeah. it is amazing, amazing. Yeah. what and, we and can do we when we make goodbye, that I would love to go on and talk to you about, especially these examples, because, uh, so, we have to read the book, um, and <laughs> <laughs> Body of Work, Finding the Thread that Ties Your Story Together, which is what Pamela Slim and I have been talking about. She's the author of the book, and your blog, so that we can uh, find out, obviously, more about what you're doing and more advice, Escape from Cubicle Nation, that's the blog. That's correct, dot com, yep. Terrific. Great talking to you today. Likewise. Yeah, thanks, Pam. We are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.